Managers at the IRS have definite hopes and expectations for the coming year now that they have a confirmed commissioner and the expectation of extra money thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act. Just before the Senate confirmed Commissioner Danny Werfel, I spoke with the president of the Professional Managers Association, Chad Hooper. He said that Werfel, to be successful, must be a partner to the workforce to lead us as an agency through the modernization and reform initiatives that are ahead of us. A future IRS commissioner has to communicate with frontline employees, managers, and supervisors at all levels of the agency. The transformation isn't going to be successful if it happens from the top, but it's also not going to be successful if it happens from the bottom. So we feel very passionately that frontline managers must be included in that conversation because they're aware uniquely of what their teams need and what barriers to success exist. And so it will prevent the agency in this time of rapid transformation after so many um, decades of inertia, prevent us from reinventing a wheel or proposing reforms with no practical chance of proper implementation. Um, And we want that next commissioner to understand the value of and commit to working closely with frontline IRS management associations, particularly like the one that I lead here at PMA, where we already have a formal consultative agreement with the service that's centered on enhancing agency operations. Because there is some evidence coming out that because of the money they got under the infrastructure bill, this $80 billion, a lot of it has initially been used to just get out of the emergency they've been having in customer experience, answering the phones and so forth, but at the cost of some of the long-term modernization efforts that were ongoing, such as the software that controls the master file system, which is really the link pin to all of the other modernization they want to do, that's been put on hold or pushed back for the umpteenth time. What are you hearing? So for from our perspective, you know, we we knew that there would be an immediate need for the agency to make investments right away to turn around. It's this backlog that I know publicly they've been attributing to the pandemic. We feel it's more appropriate to attribute it to the 2018-2019 government shutdown that then was exacerbated by the pandemic. But that's neither here nor there. The good news is that we seem to be on top of it now. That immediate demonstration of ability is necessary politically, unfortunately. If we got all of this, you know, $80 billion, and then in the immediate aftermath of the very next tax season also showed, um, right, like we were slow to react or slow to dig out, there was a very real risk that a new Congress would take that money away and say we weren't implementing it properly. So those priorities are kind of set by the political winds. And and that isn't me minimizing, of course, the very real need of us to provide adequate service during a filing season. I'm thrilled to to know that we're able to answer more than 90% of the calls and and respond to people's inquiries and and process their tax returns. Like that's a phenomenal improvement. But as you mentioned, the elephant in the room is getting ourselves off of the 65-year-old computer system. And that is the real work ahead Um, But right now, for me, uh, I think that kind of prioritization does require a confirmed commissioner Um, going into this kind of a filing season and these and and thinking of these kinds of changes is like going into the playoffs without a coach. And I don't think like any pro team would recommend that. 
you know, so we have our committed employees at the IRS, like working to execute their responsibilities to have a filing season. Those are the things they know how to do very well, but without like real leadership at the top to make and support management decisions, um, to instill a productive org culture and to manage these critical modernization efforts. I just, I don't know, like one example I had um, that I felt like where this was already evident was how the agency missed its own deadline to produce a plan of how it was going to over the next 10 years um, use the $80 billion appropriation. We were really disappointed to see the agency miss that deadline, but that deadline did fall in between you know, Reddick's uh, term limit and the appointment of a new commissioner. And in some ways, I wasn't surprised. I disappointed, but not surprised um, that the agency would sure miss that. We're speaking with Chad Hooper. He's president of the Professional Managers Association. What should the first thing Danny Werfel does be, do you think? I believe that the first thing that Commissioner Werfel would need to focus on is meeting with us and our, uh, we have a sister group at uh, the Federal Managers Association that advocates as well to understand the lay of the land. We also want to be sure that Commissioner Werfel is unique in having prior experience. We don't often get a commissioner who was an acting commissioner in the past. And there are some things that have changed in the last 13 years since Danny was here last. However, at the IRS, there's also a lot of things that say the same. And we want to be sure that we have an opportunity to uh, read Commissioner Werfel in on those on those issues and on those intractable problems, um, because we are not currently confident that the senior executive team necessarily has an unvarnished view of what's going on under the hood. And we want that we want the current future commissioner to have a full awareness of what they're facing while trying to implement a major transformation so that they can have a clear view of roadblocks and possible issues in the next five years. And what might some of the roadblocks be to the reforms needed, do you think? I mean, you've got a lot of unionized employees, but they say the right things about wanting to move the agency forward and be a high-performing 21st century tax organization. So what's buried there under the seemingly calm waters right now? And we agree with with our and union partner NTEU that there is an appetite for that. And we do believe that having that modernization would improve the employee experience. What we're not seeing is a skilled executive and management cadre that we think can lead a workforce of tomorrow. And we are also concerned that with a huge influx of new hires currently, right, as we're trying to rebuild some of what we've lost over the last 10 or 15 or 20 years, but then also the IRS workforce is older than the rest of the civil service. Um, And during Commissioner Werfel's term, should he be confirmed, we'll see a great amount of generational turnover at the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS culture internally is not prepared to onboard a lot of new talent. It's been a very long time since we've seen a lot of fresh faces. There's a lot of tension um, among the workforce when they see someone new come in at a higher grade, because you have to remember for 30 or 40 years, the only new faces you usually see are at the entry level. So seeing someone walk into a grade 13, a grade 14 job, that was always usually like an internal hire. Mm-hmm. And the IRS doesn't have a great way right now to onboard folks into those roles. They don't have a great way to train folks and to keep their like continuing education skills up. 
And we don't believe, I know that that's like very wonky, but we want to be sure that the managers have the tools and the resources that they need in order to lead. And sometimes we don't think that the current leadership, um, particularly in just in the senior executive service, like hears that um, or really appreciates fully the risk to the agency that they're that they're that's on the horizon, I guess I should say. So ultimately, all of their issues revolve around human capital at some level. I would say that the biggest issues are in human capital right now. And just finally, you know, the new commissioner will have a five-year term, and yet there's a ten-year modernization and transformation plan. So, what should that plan look like, and what transformations should happen in the next five and ten years? Looking, taking I'm- a long-term view here. I'm really fortunate to not be the person who has to conceive of that myself. And I feel for the next commissioner because the hard work of developing a 10-year modernization plan for the world's most complex and efficient tax collection mechanism in, in humanity's history is quite an undertaking. And then when you think about the IRS commissioner's term, right, being limited to five years then you have to leave when it's only half-baked. So Commissioner Werfel will only get to see half of that take place and, and build the mechanisms to see it through to the end. Not only would does that funding, the $80 billion, transform taxpayer service, and you can see that dividend being paid, as we mentioned earlier, we also think that there's space for, in this plan, our government taking a more active role in improving tax administration and increasing equity in the tax system. You may have saw in January, Stanford and the Treasury Department together put out a study further implying that the overselection of Black taxpayers in our audit system, PMA has spoken out about this and our former commissioner didn't really agree with that. Now we have additional data that suggests that there's more the IRS can do there. Um, And I think that that would be an important thing for a future commissioner to focus on in these five years. I also believe that ensuring that the $80 billion, that there are structures and accountability structures and procurement to be sure that the that that money is spent properly that we've we've struggled historically in IRS procurement spaces and i know again that that's like a little bit wonky but we want to be sure that we're contracting those dollars out in a way that is efficient and spent well and for me that means trying to find ways to implement commercial off-the-shelf software solutions where we currently have handmade or hand-grown databases that makes it very complicated for the IRS to recruit a workforce externally. Right now, what the IRS does is it's sort of trapped, right? Their union contract requires them to bargain whenever there's new technologies that are brought into the workplace. And so that causes management when they want to upgrade a system to then request that system be custom built to look as much like the old one as possible. When we do that, it means that you, there's a benefit to grow, quote unquote, growing up in the IRS, right? You have to like understand what it was like on paper to understand why it looks like this in the computer, to understand why the second computer looks like the old computer system. And it means that you can't just hire like an HR person from another company because we don't use some HR system sure. that you can just buy. You can't use a ticketing system to file facilities requests because we don't use one that you can just buy. Even the way that we record our phone calls for quality purposes We use an off-the-shelf system, and then we have to do all this stuff on the back end to make it our own. We hamper our own ability to recruit a workforce, and then we have to make all of this custom training, um, and we don't have the capacity to do that. 
we need to think about how procurement ties into efficiency and how that hampers or helps our ability to recruit and retain a workforce. That's a big amount of thinking. And I'm confident that someone who has expertise in public service management consulting can think in three dimensions that way. Um, and in that way, we are excited to work with the commissioner workful in the future. That's my one big take home. Okay. And I appreciate you talking to me about that. <laughs> All right. Chad Hooper is president of the Professional Managers Association. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. It's great to see you again. And there's much more to the interview. We'll post it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. 
it's an amazing story. And two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, Now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept 
me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you've got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.